This episode features discussions and interviews around sensitive topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. It was on a Sunday and I'd played a football match that day. And I'd come back and I'd had a bath and went onto the PlayStation with my friends. We had a knock on the door uh, and I was living at my mum's at the time. And my mum went to get the door. Mum came into my room and was like, you know, it's the police. I was quite scared. But I also didn't feel like I needed to be scared because I didn't, one, I didn't know why they were asking for me. But two, it didn't feel like I was fully like they didn't say i was under arrest until i left the, the building hello and welcome to the problem with man over the next two episodes we're looking at false allegations and the destruction and damage a false allegation can cause we're hugely humbled to have liam share his story and experience with us in 2015 liam was a university fresher studying criminology when his life was upended following a false allegation We'd met at a a party that a mutual friend was was hosting, and we, I mean, yeah, we we, we got on really well, um, and it was kind of just a really stereotypical teenage kind of romance, you know. We were texting, and we went on a couple of dates, and from there, we were in a relationship for about a year and year and just under a year and a half around that sort of um, range it's difficult because I don't think anyone who ever goes through this can really say like oh you know I knew there was something wrong I knew that there were mental health issues I knew that there had been things or I had been told this is the problem now is that I say I know and, and actually it's difficult to know what to have trusted it you I was told certain things that explained kind of how she why she suffered from mental health issues and so it was never a question of like I think she's going to go off the rails it was more you were a bit more sensitive to particular topics or you were a bit more um, I guess patient when because you would be able to just try and understand why they were potentially communicating in in not the greatest way you know it could be anything really um and you'd sort of feel like rather than it being like a a reactive kind of thing where you think like oh she's going to do this you think oh she's done this because of what's happened in the past and so it was kind of you you sort of found yourself explaining it that way and and being a bit more just mindful of uh, i guess what's happened previously Like most relationships in your late teens and with the prospect of heading off to university, Liam's relationship kind of came to its natural conclusion. Mind, the relationship was... We we both, we had a conversation, it was very... It it felt very mature. Like, there's no other way I could kind of explain it in that two people sat down, realised that they weren't really getting along. It wasn't like an I hate you kind of thing, it was just, it wasn't love. That, that was it. That, it was end of. We weren't in love anymore. So, at that point, we wanted each other to be happy, and we we decided that that we weren't the people to to make each other happy. And that was that was that. I mean, we did it over dinner. Walked her to the bus stop. You know, like we. It was it, it it was such a normal kind of what felt like a fairly clean breakup. They'd mutually decided to end the relationship and move on, and that's exactly what Liam did. 
until a few months later. On it, it was on a Sunday, and I played a football match that day, and um, it was yeah, it was just a bit random. It was just like, like any other day, really. And I'd come back, and I I'd had a bath, and went onto the PlayStation with my friends. Again, pretty typical teenage things to do. Um, and yeah, I was I was talking to one of my friends. We we had a knock on the door. Uh, and I was living at my mum's at the time and my mum went to get the door um, I wasn't expecting anyone so obviously I didn't get up and um, mum came into my room and was like you know it's the police and, and it was very um, it was really quite strange because I, I've said it so many times before of like I, my, I, I kept thinking like oh I'm doing a criminology degree this has to be something to do with that or um Maybe I'm supposed to have seen something that I haven't seen, um, or, or like I've, I was supposed to be in a, a certain place and supposed to have seen something, maybe in a club or so. You know, all of these kind of possibilities run through your mind. And the only thing they really said to me was, "Can you can you come down to the station? We need to ask you a few questions." <laughs> Very stereotypical police talk, um, and it does sound like movie esque. But that, I mean, it's a simple. They didn't want to tell me in front of my mum what it was. They didn't want anyone to know what it was um, in case it impacted the case or, or whatever the reason it is. Um, and I guess also in case I, I ran away or, or whatever the reason it is. So I asked them if I could get dressed. Um, and they are, then, you know, one of them was on high alert then of like, is there a window he can jump out of? We, we lived on a ground floor flat. Like the, the windows didn't open very well and I wouldn't have got very far. Like it was, it was all a bit unnecessary kind of, um, again, just to, just what you'd imagine the police officer would kind of be like. I know it's really bad to sort of say because you don't want to give them like a stereotypical reputation. But but exactly, it, it was exactly how you would think that they would behave in that moment was how they behaved. It was very much like this is a criminal, you know, blah blah blah, and it completely missed the whole. There's actually a person here, kind of part of it. I'm still trying to. I, at this point, I I don't know what's what's going on. Like I don't know because I, there's never a point of me where I would have been able to guess that outcome. So I don't know what else I could. I, I, again, like I said, it, it sounded crazy, but I think in criminology degree, this is an experience, you know, esque kind of thing. So I'm gonna learn what it's like and maybe have to write an essay on what are the processes that were followed to when I was arrested and, and, try, and it sounds so stupid when I say it back out loud but also it made more sense than what was actually happening so I, did, I still didn't have time to really react I was quite scared but I also didn't feel like I needed to be scared because I didn't one I didn't know why they were asking for me but two it didn't feel like I was fully like they didn't say I was under arrest until I left the, the building and once I'd left the building with them they then sat me down in the car and said you're under arrest for blah 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 and at that point you know something snaps in your mind and you're like oh my gosh what on earth is what's happening it's not at all what I was expecting but also your mind is just like I want to get out of this car why am I in this car I it's still the weirdest thing I was in tears and I they were asking me things about my degree and they were trying to sort of not calm me down but I don't want to say full sense of security but looking back on it that's kind of how it felt that it was 
asking questions to open me up a little bit so that when I got to the interview, you know, I'd be primed and ready for, for the grilling questions or whatever. And I just... I mean, I, at that point, something inside of me just absolutely broke. Like, I just couldn't comprehend what was what was happening. From that moment, I've, I've, I've never been the same person. Um... Part of me still tries to digest that this has happened and now I'm back to my normal life again. Um, And I'm trying to... Even now, trying to remember parts of myself of who I was and wanting to go back to being that person. And this internal struggle of trying to fight, of go back. And and I just think it was from that moment in that police car where the way that I felt, just the betrayal of a person, but how far what somebody says can go even at that early stage just absolutely shattered my perception of anything um, of people, of, of life of, of, you know, very much life is short kind of um, feel to it, but also just how easy it is for somebody to take things away from you that you've kind of built up for yourself I think the problem with anything like this is that it feels as if and the, the whole atmosphere gives you the impression that it's not just that somebody's made the accusation, it's that people have bought into it, that this is a realistic possibility. Um, and people have that perception of you. And so I... That was the bit that hurt more than anything. It wasn't just the fact that somebody had made an accusation, it was that people were believing it. Ross Burnett is a senior research associate at the Centre for Criminology at the University of Oxford. I asked her why someone might make a false allegation. I've used the term wrongful allegations to underline that um, they're not necessarily deliberately false because when people hear the term false allegations, they can be a bit defensive and assume that One is accusing all the people who make allegations um, that are untrue and accusing them of being liars. But of course, false in its literal sense of um, contrary to the facts, untrue is broader than that. And um, there are different categories, sometimes combinations, but I think it's more helpful to think of false as equal to untrue, including in uh, allegations made in error, um, but also false allegations that are knowingly false, and to divide those into ones that are malicious, which is probably um, a minority, and those which are uh, made knowingly but for other reasons, other causes. I think if they're believed to be true, then um, especially in the case of non-recent, allegations of non-recent abuse, formerly called historical, I think the term non-recent is preferred by those who say they're survivors, um, they can go back decades and decades. And um, we all have memories of things in the past that when we revisit them, we might elaborate in different ways or perceive them differently and then having rehearsed those memories those 
re, um, revised memories, if you like, in our mind. They can become they be, they can become edited and believed, even though the original event wasn't quite the same. We have no way of accessing the truth there. Putting false memories aside, there can also be a financial incentive. Once you've reported an allegation to the police, you're able to apply for compensation via the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. Matthew Scott is a criminal barrister and has acted for clients in a range of cases, including appeals, wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice. The problem is that um, the compensation available to victims of, of sexual abuse is actually set quite low um, in, in terms of the statutory compensation paid by the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. It's much lower than you would get uh, in, a, in a civil claim. So on one hand, it's rather a mean system. In another way, it's rather an overgenerous system because um, you don't even need to establish a conviction, um, although it certainly helps if, you, if, 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 you, um, if your alleged assailant is, is convicted. Um, I think it does need looking at, again, um, I'm not sure there are any very easy answers as to, as to how it should be reformed, but I think it probably does need some reform, yes. There can also be a psychological benefit for some accusers, as Ros Burnett explains. Right. Richard Webster has written about this in great detail in his book, The Secrets of Brineston. 2005, um, he did a very in-depth study of allegations of abuse against um, carers in, in uh, children's residential schools. And he talked about um, psychological benefits that motivate and sustain claims of abuse. I'll just read a quote, if I may. He said, what is not generally understood is that the act of making a false allegation of abuse can and often does bring a feeling of psychological satisfaction. People who previously felt overlooked and insignificant may suddenly find themselves a centre of attention, concern and sympathy. At the same time, the idea that they are now engaged in a battle against evil, in which many of the people, including counsellors and social workers, are fighting alongside them, can be a source of great emotional energy. It may give people both a raison d'etre and a feeling of strength and solidarity, which they did not previously have. So I, th I think that um, some of the people who engage in these battles against evil and against their own abuse, their own alleged abuse, um, join survivor groups and become campaigners. Liam was taken into custody, processed and put into a holding cell. When they're processing you, they take all your belongings and they ask you for, you know, what's your pin code to your phone and can you write it down for us and blah, blah, blah. And, and again, I was just handed everything over, just quite naively in, in a sense as well. But just handing everything over was keen to be as cooperative as possible because in my mind, like, you know, if you cooperate, the quicker this is just going to wrap up and they're going to, you know, find out the truth. So that was fine. Um, and then I sat there for three hours. I don't, like... It feels way longer because you've got nothing to do. You can't talk to anyone. Um, they took my fingerprints halfway through, so, you know, it was nice to, to be let out of the four walls. 
after maybe about an hour or so and they do fingerprint and they they take your photo and and you know again that bit is kind of like the movies you know you, you have those things that they take to get your dna and, and whatnot but um a lot of it was just i was trying to not normalize it but have conversations with the, the police officers to just I, I just craved some sort of supportive comfort measure in in the police station and that it's not that the police aren't necessarily friendly or anything like that because there were i mean no none of the police officers were like oh you scum you know you this you that well it's not that kind of thing it's just very it's very soft of like ah you'll be fine and and that's kind of like the level of support that you get (laughs) um and that isn't what you need when you're in that kind of situation well, we often talk about and relate to the trauma suffered by legitimate victims of rape and serious sexual assault. We very rarely think of the trauma or stress caused by a wrongful arrest. So I was just sat in this box on my own, just, just completely broken. I, I hate talking about the actual emotional part of it. I always talk about the... And this is what happened in a really, like, chronological sort of order. But I sat in that room and I, I remember, it, you know, this blue plasticky mattress thing and curled up for just the longest time waiting for someone to come and get me out. And, of course, no one does. Like, you just, you just continue to wait. That's what happens. It's, it's an experience I would never wish on my worst enemy. You know, it's, it's not something I'm keen to go through again. Um, but it, it it's impossible to fully explain because you repress so much of it and you bury so much of it, even now to just kind of... When you need to continue just with life, you just have to... There's two ways of coping. You either kind of accept that it's happened and move on or you pretend it never happened and you kind of push it away but it, whichever way you do it you're still pushing down a lot of the feelings or trying to ignore a lot of the feelings that were going on in that given time I mean yeah I was, I was a kid you know like I was I was 19 when I was accused so I was still young I think even now knowing all that we know like so we knowing all that I know now about the criminal justice system and, and the law and all the things that I've learned and, and all the people that I've met even now I still don't think I would I'd cope with it I just don't think I'd be able to to press on podcast support our work by leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app the problem with men podcast i think for many of us talking to the police can be a stressful experience there's often a sense that everything we say is being analyzed so it's impossible to imagine how stressful it is when you know you're being investigated 
I mean, it's just a standard procedure type of thing, really. That My interview wasn't great because they jumped upon when I, I paused for a question for like 15 seconds. And I paused because they asked me um, a question about whether or not we'd done anything related to um, like bondage or anything like that. And I paused because we're talking like a, you know, we're talking over nearly a, a two year span or a year and a half span and plus six months of no talking after that. So I'm really trying to answer the questions as honestly as possible. And I paused and I just thought, is there any point in our relationship where maybe something could be considered like BDSM or whatever? And then I responded to the question and they were like, well, you paused for this amount. Of time. And they, you know, you could see this instant, like everything was fine. There was no jumping on any of the questions. There was nothing for them to jump on. All I was doing was explaining like my chronology of events versus, you know, what they then had heard um, that I'd, I I didn't even know fully what the extent of the, the accusations were. I'd, I was given like a, a piece of paper with like three lines on it that says, you know, she says this happened. She says that happened. She says this happened. And then they go, we're just going to ask you questions around your relationship. But that moment always sticks out in my mind because the first thing, first thing they said um, were, was like, are you sure? You had to think about that for a little while there. And it was just sort of like, oh, have a bit of understanding of like, <laughs> if it, surely if I was going to lie, I'd just say the answer straight away. It doesn't make sense for me to sit there and have to pause to think about it, to answer things as honestly as possible. So um, at that point, I then knew what the interview was, was really a push for and what you learned quite quickly, what it is that they're looking for and what's going to stick out for them and, and what, I don't know that it wasn't, it didn't feel as if they were looking for your version of events. It felt as if they were looking for something that supported hers and that was it. And that's a very different approach to, to an investigation from start to finish. Rape and serious sexual assault have always been problematic for the legal system. Allegations can be made months, weeks or even decades after the alleged crime is committed, making cases hard to investigate and evidence difficult to obtain, meaning conviction rates have always been low. Campaigners in recent years have tried to fix this issue. Believe Women was a prominent US campaign that came out of the Me Too movement. These campaigns have been successful in changing how police and prosecutors deal with allegations. Matthew Scott again. Well, they haven't been reversed in law, um, the point that the prosecution have to prove, prove their case to a high standard is still part of the law. Um, there are sort of some elements, I think, of, of, uh, of the law where Perhaps the burden of proof isn't isn't given the weight that it should be given, um, particularly in investigations, and one still has the, um, the the sort of principle which which is very muddled um, in, in practice. But the police are taught well: um, you you must believe um, the victim when the complaint is made, and then they're told: well, having started off by believing, then you go away and and investigators, and they say, well, at that stage, we have an open mind. But it's all a bit of a muddle. Um, and I, I, I don't think with investigations, there is there is necessarily always the even handedness between investigating matters, which 
assist the um, prosecution and investigating matters which assist the defence. I think sometimes there is a, a bias which creeps in in favour of, of simply trying to build a case. As Ross Burnett explains, even labelling the complainant as a victim from the outset can cause issues. Oh, certainly, but that is also encouraged by the justice system because um, the, we, a victim's code was introduced in 2005 and um, that's been revised regularly. And it's consistent, the advice consistently has been that. Um, people who are complainants of sexual abuse should be treated as victims and they are labelled as victims, whereas the person accused is a suspect. That's the the kindest word that's used, um, is a suspect. And um, if you remember the Richard Henriquez report into Operation Midland, one of his um, main arguments and his main recommendation was that it was against due process to use that language to to refer to complainants as victims because it automatically it can't help but prejudice the police investigators as well as um, as well as juries into feeling that he you know this is somebody who's called a victim because they are a victim and his main recommendation was to stop using that language the changing guidance of how the law should be applied is worrying. One of the staples of legal thinking is Blackstone's ratio, that it is better that ten guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer. A centuries-old principle that has helped to define the burden of proof and beyond reasonable doubt. Dennis Eady is a lecturer in the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University and leader of the Innocence Project, which encourages law students to review and investigate miscarriages of justice. I mean, as I always say, it's um, if you want to have a justice system which believes in proof beyond reasonable doubt, or being sure, as it's now referred to, then you do have to accept that sometimes um, people will actually be guilty and they will not be convicted or that there might be a low conviction rate or even a low prosecution rate in sexual offences because sexual offences are so difficult to prove either way. They're difficult to prove innocence and they're difficult to prove guilt. And what uh, the approach of believing the victim and the, the general idea of achieving targets, what those things do is to undermine that principle of proof beyond reasonable doubt um, and therefore, you will inevitably, if you have that philosophy, you inevitably get more wrongful convictions. And it, it seems to be a choice that um, society is making to accept that we abandon that notion of uh, proof beyond reasonable doubt. And we just go on a kind of, well, the person, why would the person say this? if it's not true. The problem is, sometimes there are all sorts of complex reasons why people do make false accusations. Even when an accuser has given evidence which can be proven to be wrong, they're sometimes given the benefit of the doubt. And there are different situations which can end up being uh, described in different ways. Most of the cases we deal with are historical, and they date back 10, 20, 30 
even 40 years in some cases. Um, the accusation has only recently come out and there's been a, a whole flood of this such that prisons are filling up with quite elderly men mostly um, based on accusations from so long ago that it's quite impossible to really prove me the way. And many of our clients, what they say to us and what they produce often is some evidence that the place where this is said to have happened or the, the car I had at that time or the person I was with at that time didn't exist at that time. And it, it doesn't coincide. But what the prosecution then says is, well, okay, memory is difficult and the person who's accusing you is probably just getting a bit confused about the times. Uh, so even if you've got a defence, sometimes it gets kind of talked out of the, out of existence in that way. Controversially, a lot of allegations seem to happen after complainants have had some sort of therapy. Ross Burnett again. So there is that belief among some of the um, counselling professions that troubled adults often um, are troubled because of sexual abuse and, and and are generally encouraged to believe that. So we don't know without having some kind of um, <clears throat> documentary evidence or some some concrete evidence whether it's actually true. But then the, a lot of these counsellors will use hypnotherapy and um, helping them to recover memories. And of course, that's all a very controversial area. The memory wars have been very problematic. Memory wars have been going on for years, and um, I, you know, I completely sympathise with those who uh, feel uh, feel uh, angry about um, pushing the idea of recovered memories because that can be unhelpful to those who really were abused. But this is the situation we are in, where there is a sort of trade off between believing allegations to be true and considering whether some allegations are false that is untrue and it does feel like sometimes a zero-sum game. Dennis Eady has found the same issue with historical allegations. A lot of uh, our cases it's one of the features is that the accusation is very often made after a period of counselling. Now that may be perfectly valid and of course, any kind of abuse is, is traumatic and has to be sensitive to that. But there is that uh, certainly that correlation. Counselling is often something which brings forward um, an accusation. And there have, of course, been quite famous incidents of the Cleveland and Rochdale, um, Orkney inquiries, Cleveland and Orkney inquiries, where... It was seen as atriogenic in that the that what was eventually became clear is that there's the counselling itself that was creating the accusation, where the children involved were actually denying the accusation, and uh, counselling was kind of forcing them into a situation where they were interpreting their denial as uh, proof that something had happened. You know, catch twenty two situation. It is frightening because, and if we look at it from the point of view of many of our clients, I mean, typically. Our clients, our most, uh, most of our clients, um, yes, we deal with murder cases and other things as well, but most, the majority, about 62% on the recent figures of the accusations we get are his sex offences, and almost all of those are historical, so they're dating back a long time. So typically, the person writing to us is 
perhaps late 60s, early 70s, in some cases in their 80s, serving a very, very long sentence because sentences are very, very harsh for this type of offence, particularly where children are allegedly involved. So typically they're, they're quite elderly. They're, they haven't apparently offended since you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And they often have ideas about, well, that couldn't have happened because of this, but that's sort of sidelined. They're unable to mount any real defence. They're not allowed to challenge the complainant to any extent. Therapists can inadvertently help accusers frame their story to make it more appealing to investigators and juries. They can get help to do that. I mean, that is offered to them. They can go to victim support and they can get um, special counsellors who, who will help them to build a case. And there are special measures for victims of rape and sexual abuse, um, which mean that they can now... Um, <clears throat> Well, there's been some experimental studies, but it's going to be rolled out across the country where they can give evidence remotely, not just from um, behind the box, but remotely. And they can give it in advance of the trial so that the accused person doesn't have the opportunity to confront, confront them. And the cross-examination, again, has to be done remotely before the trial. So yes, they, they do have that opportunity and also there are counsellors who they can go to who will help them in framing how they feel and how much they've been hurt by this, what harm has been done, so to help them use the appropriate language. And it's extremely um, emotive and emotional information that to, to impart to a jury, it's, um, it can when you hear about the pain and suffering that people have gone through as a result of the abuse they they claim, it, it, well, you can have a visceral reaction to that. It's hard to remain impartial, for members of the jury to remain impartial. These shifts in how police and investigators approach allegations of serious sexual assault and rape and the influence of counsellors can put the defendant on the back foot from the outset, as Liam experienced. Well, this is the thing. A lot of people... And I, I have this internal um, debate, I guess, of like, well, if you're telling the truth, you know, sh surely you're just carefree. And it, it, it's more like once you realise that that their reasoning for why they're asking certain questions in the way that they're asking them, and that they're looking to just find anything that might support her side of it, whether or not it could be interpreted differently, or, or however. Um, at that point, that's what makes you anxious and nervous. And that's when you start doubting yourself because you start thinking like, have I misunderstood the situation? You know, is there a possibility that this could be perceived by her as forceful or uncomfortable, whatever it is. And you really start just throwing yourself into this turmoil of, of internal thoughts of like, you you can't understand why you're in this position. So you try and understand what she said and, and not justify it, but understand how she got there because just doing it on a whim doesn't make any sense. Like there has to be a reason or there has to be a thing. And especially when you had, like I said, not a bad breakup, you still don't want to believe that this horrible person that's actively trying to destroy your life. And so you want to try and get to the bottom of this and sort it. And I think, as time goes on, yeah, you just 
you realize the person's just absolutely either malicious or just lost it. Um, I don't, it's still hard to know even now whether or not, um, what the reasoning is. I was just desperate to not see the worst in a person. It's just, it's, it's probably my biggest flaw in this case of, of just desperately wanting, because a lot of it then later on was, well, she's, she's going to withdraw the accusation because obviously she knows it's not true. So why she, she must, there must be a stage where you have that something clicks in your mind and goes, this is so wrong. I can't believe I've even gone this far. This has to be stopped. Um, and it, the sad thing is it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't cross somebody's, somebody's mind. But yeah, in my head, I'm still just trying to, I'm aware of the trouble that potentially it would get me in, but also it's, it's just, a lot of it is just trying to digest it and trying to work out what, how you've got to that position. What, what did you do? Because that's the bit that you can control, right? That's the bit that you can kind of, you blame yourself a little bit of being in this position, whether that's, oh, I chose this person. So that's how my life got ruined or, um, I didn't see, like you said, you know, the first question was, were there any red flags, I guess? And, uh, and that's everyone's first question. Um, is, did you not see this coming or did you not have any kind of indication that she was a bit of a, a bit off the rails? And, and the short answer is not that I would have noticed now there's things that you look back on and go, yeah, maybe that probably was an indication, but you just don't think somebody's capable of, of something like this. Liam was eventually released while the investigation continued. While his life was in limbo, he knew the possibility that if he was eventually convicted, he'd face a long prison sentence something he felt he had to prepare himself and his friends and family for. I st- I just, I, I can talk to people about it because I felt like I was burdening and also people imitate the reaction that you have. So if I cried, other people would cry. So I felt that, it wasn't their fault, it wasn't anyone's fault, it's just the way that I, I took the situation on, that if I broke down, other people would. And I think maybe I broke down, there were a few occasions, you know, I'm human, but I really limited it to as as little knowledge as possible, and it would it would take something really quite monumental, just mentally, to for me to get to that point where I would just snap and go, I I, I can't talk about this. I don't know what to do, um, and maybe reach out for support in that sort of sense, um, which is still, I mean, carry those parts of it even now, I guess. I was more adamant that that was what the case was going to be. I think the likelihood is, you know, my mum would have come to visit and and would have doted on me hand and foot to make sure that I was as comfortable and safe. And and my friends would have, uh, you know, visited. Like I said, I've got brilliant friends. They, they, They really would have just, I don't know, treated me as if, although I'm in prison, that somehow I'm still involved in all the the group things. But my approach to it was like, I really just... At that point, I wasn't going to be Liam anymore. If I went to prison, I was just... I would have wanted to just completely lost my identity, myself, just become a bit of a, a shell of a person and just walked around until this... the uh, 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 Well, until life ended, I guess, really, as morbid as that is. I would have preferred to have been referred to by, like, a prison number, and that was it. Because for me... It was then a case of like, if if I can't live my life, I don't want anybody else to put their life on pause. And so I tried to make arrangements with my friends and I 
it was really stupid. Everyone spoke to each other about it afterwards. But, you know, I, I then I then spoke to them about, um, you know, will you kind of make sure you're you're there for this person? Will somebody make sure they look after my mum? And I tried to get all of my friends to agree that one of them would look after the other one to talk about, you know, whatever issues. And if anybody was ever going through something even close to as serious as this, that they would make sure that, you know, they were 100% there as everyone else has kind of been and, and make sure that, in my mind, I just wanted people to be looked after. Like if I, I, I had no control over what was going to happen to me anymore. It was just a waiting game for the trial. And um, I made a point of like saying goodbye to people. I, I can't tell you how many um, goodbyes and, and those like really deep conversations of like, um, this may be the last time I see you, you know, end of, I, I told my mum and my partner at the time that I, if I went down, I mean, they could make every precaution in the universe. I was going to find a way to commit suicide. I wasn't ready to live my life in prison or just carry on in a place or it's just in a world where I was labeled something that you know, I can even comprehend, let alone do. I've been lying here for too long. I don't know what else to do. I want to get away from every little thing just to try to make it through. I've been thinking about my options. Every detail in my head But it doesn't really matter Nothing matters so I cry instead I've been running circles Trying to catch my breath I've been trying everything I can But I ain't got nothing left We're continuing with Liam's story and looking at more issues surrounding false allegations in the next episode of the Problem With Men podcast, which is due to go out on the 14th of June. Hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. And of course, if you've been affected by anything in this episode, we've put links to various resources and support on our website at theproblemwithmen.co.uk. Industries production. Produced and presented by Chris Dodd and produced by Sandra Cabasinguzi.